Rory Capital Startup Sales Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Bowery Capital Startup Sales Podcast. Today, we're back in the booth with your co-hosts, Evan McElwain and Jess Benito. And this week, we're joined by Brandon Jones, Head of Revenue Strategy and Operations at Komodo Health. He's going to be talking to us about building your first RevOps model and where to start. Welcome to the show, Brandon. Thank you for having me. Brandon, can you share with our listeners more about your background and what you do at Komodo Health? For sure. So background-wise, I've been in and out of tech for the past 10 years. Started off in sales. I was a mediocre salesperson. So I quickly realized that I was a much better sales strategist than, um, than, than a closer. So I uh, moved around and led sales operations at a couple different tech companies, worked in venture capital as well. And that was an awesome experience. We got to work with about 44 different high growth tech companies and see what good looks like from a RevOps perspective. So I saw the good movies, I saw the bad movies, and that really helped me um, where I am now currently at Komodo Health. And my role here is to help us move to being an IPO ready organization. And the team at Komodo is awesome. The sales team has been, has been crushing it the past uh, five years. So it's really exciting place to be and exciting to grow the RevOps function here. And Brandon, for the listeners who aren't familiar with Komodo Health, can you tell us a little bit more about the company? Yeah. So Komodo Health, the, the mission of Komodo Health is to reduce the burden of disease. And, and how we do that essentially is we have data that is um, really beneficial to biopharma companies, to um, healthcare organizations, health providers, in, in their efforts to either work on a clinical trial or develop a drug, or help enable their field of medical sales professionals. And essentially, they have the problem of trying to identify if we come up with a drug or if we're, if we're working through a clinical trial, um, I'll use the drug example, where is the, where's the burden for this disease? Is it concentrated in certain parts of the country? Should we uh, look for physicians who get patients that come in with this particular disease more often? Could they be good candidates for a trial, a clinical trial, or for um, for other efforts. So we really try to help enable a lot of that, that progress from those types of companies. That's really cool. What is one thing that none of our listeners would know about you? Ah, so I try one new thing a week and I've been doing that for five and a half years and I've done really basic things like trying different foods that I haven't had for, uh, during the week, or I'll try, like I went right before the lockdowns, I went to an avant-garde dance performance. And that's something that was out of my comfort zone. I would never usually go to. And it could be as much, I think, as traveling internationally on a, like a two-day notice or learning a new language, which I did, or um, skydiving. So it's exciting. Every week I've been trying to get creative with, the, with COVID and try different things. But uh, most of my things have been indoors recently. That's what awesome. have been, yeah, that's awesome. What what have been some of the fun things that you've tried during COVID? I think the listeners are probably looking for for ideas at this point. <laughs> so some of the some of the indoor ideas have been pretty mundane, but um, different things. Like I, I, one of the most interesting ones was calligraphy. So I noticed on um, I think it was Instagram 
where someone had an account and they were just fans would say, hey, can you write my name in really cool like font and calligraphy? So I thought maybe I should try that. Like maybe I should, this is like a perfect opportunity to put pen to paper for a little while. So I'll, I'll let you know when I can, when I can uh, write beautifully, but my handwriting's terrible. So. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's, that's a really cool idea. Um, yeah. We'll look forward to, to hearing the updates as you, as you level up there. So for sure. before we, before we dive in, Brandon, can you just give us a little bit of a sense of, you know, what is RevOps and, and walk us through how the role has evolved in recent years. Yeah. It, it's funny because when I got started in RevOps, I felt like it was the wild west and there was a lot of, it, it depended on what company you went to. It meant something everywhere. So at one company, it could mean the Salesforce people at another, it could mean sales planning and at another, it could mean sales enablement. So the way I've tried to define it and, and, and talk about it, pulling both from just like my background and also from having the pleasure of working at Insight with all those great companies is into three buckets. Like RevOps should help build a scalable, repeatable, predictable sales engine. And it should be a partner to a really strong head of sales or CRO in doing that. So RevOps isn't doing that alone, but everything that RevOps does, if it doesn't fall in the bucket of helping the team build a scalable engine, or something that could be repeated where you could put new reps in and hire and onboard people and they can be just as successful as, their, as the people that have been there for years. And the predictable part, which I think during COVID, it, a lot of companies are finding really important is how well do you forecast? Like how, how good are your, your dashboards and reports and what is your data, what are your data and insights telling you? So I think if you, the thing I've found is the companies that have been really successful have stayed in pretty much in those three buckets and they've, you know, with varying degrees of focus, but they have that in common. And I think good RevOps is, is definitely in those three. And for the early stage founders and revenue leaders who are listening, um, at what point do you think it makes sense for them to prioritize adding a RevOps person? We've kind of heard all, all different opinions on this one, but it seems to be that it makes sense to bring this person on earlier and earlier. And so, yeah, curious to get your thoughts on that. <laughs> so I think it depends, um, but I'll, I'll speak probably for the more general case of inside sales team looking to grow fast, like you mentioned, early stage. So it depends on, um, you know, the areas of focus. If if you feel, I, I would say, if you feel comfortable with your sales strategy when you're early stage, you're still trying to really figure it out. So you don't really have a great idea of what works. You're trying different things. You may have kind of a founder, a seller organization as well, where your CEO or founder is getting involved into a lot of the sales. So where I'm going with that is, is I think when you're, when you're really early like that, the biggest thing that you can do is just start to build the infrastructure early. So if you, if you do hire RevOps, and you can, you can do this by either saying, you know, we want to go the route of a contractor because it's a little bit more flexible, or you bring in your first RevOps person. I think it's understanding that that first person is not going to be your sales strategist, likely. They may not be your sales enablement person. They may not be an expert at forecasting or providing you any type of predictability. At the really early stages, most of the companies I've worked with that, that get down the road later all, the, all of them wish they had invested in infrastructure upfront because it's a lot more challenging to undo spaghetti than it is to just have put, you know, basic 
um, Salesforce or other tools like SalesLoft or Outreach, things in place earlier that they wish they had done. And um, oftentimes the regret of not hiring RevOps is what it for early stage companies is in that bucket of man, our infrastructure could have been so much better. We could have not had to undo a lot of the things that we're trying to do. Uh, less often do I find it to be, we wish we had built a playbook earlier, um, or we wish we had, you know, a really solid kind of territory plan. When you're when you're early stage, you're just trying to figure out what works. So my recommendation would be find the RevOps person that is really strong with Salesforce, with other go-to-market tech tools, likely even your marketing automation platform if they can dabble in Marketo or HubSpot. Those are the things that will pay dividends. And so, Brandy, you were kind of just touching on it there, but when you think about, so bef- maybe before a company actually gets to the point where it's time to bring on their first RevOps hire or kind of formally outsource it to um, a, you know, a fractional sales ops shop that can help, what, what are the steps they should be doing to lay the groundwork for that infrastructure that you're talking about, right? Like this is a big point where these companies, you can't seem to really do it soon enough um, because it, it just helps lay the foundation for everything else that comes after it. Is it as simple as should they just focus on getting a CRM and then start collecting that data? Are there other pieces of software that they can use or kind of build basic building blocks that they can outsource before they get somebody kind of full-time focused on this? Yeah, that's a great point. So I think that, I think the focus, if, if I were to say before you get to that point, it's use it as an opportunity to try everything. So before you go out and get Salesforce and maybe you have a head of a sales manager or someone that says, Hey, I, I think I can tinker with this and set things up before you really commit down that path of what your opportunity or lead to opportunity to, um, to you know, what that kind of looks like, try different things with the sales process and, and the sales motion and really get that down at least to a point where you're recording it. And I'm even a fan of putting it in Google docs or wherever you do it. I think it's okay when you're early stage, because what that allows you to do is to, to say you're essentially eliminating what doesn't work for your sales motion. So that by the time you get to a point where you say, Hey, we have, we have enough reps. Now we have enough traction and we're understanding our buyer persona a little bit better and our value prop that and our sales process is more consistent that we want to start getting this in a more structured way at least you've gone through the reps of trying different things because once you kind of commit to a CRM and we're putting it in this way and doing that, the, the cost of switching and I've seen a lot of companies oscillate around and try to change things up. Uh, I worked with some that decided, okay, we, we want to use leads and then take those to accounts and opportunities and then later decide, okay, no, we don't want to use leads. We want to take everything straight to a contact. Like all of that stuff would, would have been less painful early when there's no consequence systems wise to try things. Um, and I think it gives you an opportunity to, once you find something that works to just kind of go into it. And I think that's when, you know, it's when you've tried enough to say, you know, the way we speak to customers works well, the buyer personas we're finding, these are the right ones. The, um, the sales motion, you know, we're getting consistency around that and how long it takes to close and the sales process and stages are pretty consistent with what we think. Now we're re- we've tried different things. Now we're ready to systematize that. Yeah, I love that. So just kind of iterate, 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 and try as many things as you can because it only gets harder over time as you start to really kind of uh, systematize some of these pieces in a CRM and, and, and in how you're measuring 
the your sales velocity and whatnot. So I, I really like that point. So when you think about once you get to that stage, right, where it does make sense to add a RevOps person um, and they've been iterating, they've been doing these things that you're recommending, um, but now they're trying to really build out that function. How do you think about breaking down the process um, of just trying to build out RevOps in that, in that whole model? Like where do, where do you even start? Yeah, and, and the, I think the biggest thing I've seen, and I, again, I'm drawing from some of the, the better companies I've seen do this, and, and borrowing from, from what they do. But the best way I've seen it is the way to start is almost like building a house. So you build a house, you, you build the foundation first. And in this analogy for RevOps, I think that foundation is the, the tech infrastructure, so to speak. So that is, are you at a basic or operating place with Salesforce? It's, it'll never be perfect, but do you, do you still rely on Google Sheets or other things in Excel to help your sales reps go from, I received a marketing lead to I closed it? If you can say yes to that, and that's all kind of sitting within Marketo, then Salesforce, or some type of system, that's a check to at least get you started. The, the way to think about like, taking it further is building a house, so you've got the foundation, now you need to go up like another level and start building it. And I think that, that next level for RevOps is back to the example of like predictability being next, or sorry, repeatability being next. So not that you wouldn't try to do them um, somewhat at the same time, but you're, you're definitely putting more of your eggs in the basket of infrastructure when you don't have it and helping the team kind of built for scale. But once you start to tip the balance there, you can start putting more time into codifying all the things that the team is doing that's starting to work so that when you bring new people in, and that's usually when you get to that stage as a sales team, you're getting a little bit of success. You might hit um, you know, series A, series B, and you're starting to see things pick up. A lot of that capital is to be used to hire new salespeople. So the problem you start to run into is how can we plug new people in for RevOps and help them be just as successful and productive as the people who've been here and went through all of that trial and error that we don't want to repeat. So I think that next step and that next focus is, okay, now we need to start interviewing reps. How do we build some form of a V1 of a playbook? So if we, if we know our value prop per vertical, if we know who the buyers kind of look like if the reps are prospecting so that they get an idea and can be more efficient there. And if they essentially are following some type of sales methodology or process, like let's write that down so that when people come in, they essentially learn from all the trial and error we've done to get the systems in a good place, to get our sales process in a good place. And to me, like that's that next step. It's, it's moving from your RevOps function being really centered around tools and we have to get all the tools in place to, okay, we've got the tools in a decent place, but now we need to essentially help reps be productive like as soon as they start ramping in. And if you can prove that out, I think then you've got your, to your point, you've got your next layer of where RevOps is helping, um, less of a focus on the tech. Now they're really starting to focus on rep productivity. Yeah, I like that point a lot. And it kind of goes to what you were talking about in the beginning when you were kind of defining how you think about RevOps and this intersection of, sales enablement with just um, making the process repeatable and predictable um, forecast. It's like all those things kind of culminating together. And as you grow and, and you're really ramping up hiring, getting into those growth stages, that enablement piece starts to get that much more important. How are you instilling these practices in those new reps so they can get ramped quickly and, and start being um, just profit centers of in and of themselves? Absolutely. Yeah. I think you're, I think you're totally right. It's, it's just when you go in that order and it sounds, it sounds, 
simple when you and I talk about it, but you'd be surprised. Even the companies that you, you may not expect, like really, um, really massive operations, they they all kind of stumbled through that part and probably figured it out at some point. But um, if you can start there, to your point, and you move into the enablement and saving the training and all those things for once things are in a, a good place, it really helps you not waste cycles with your RevOps team where they're not only adding value on new things, but they're trying to go back and fix old things and they end up, you know, just being in conflict, I think, with the progress of the, the rest of the revenue organization. We touched on it earlier for very early stage uh, companies, but what part of RevOps do you think is important to keep in-house and, and what pieces are you a fan of outsourcing if possible? So this one I've, I've made mistakes with, so I'm happy to share just my own personal anecdotes because this one to me seems like, so I talked a little bit earlier about when you're in certain stages, kind of what RevOps should be focused on. The things that are core RevOps in those stages, so if you're very early, it's the infrastructure and, and the scalability there. If you're starting to move into some of that, it's, it's the repeatability. It's really difficult to outsource the core thing because if no one will understand your business as well as those working inside of it. I think we all probably experience that. It's just, it's just kind of um, a natural thing. So if you are able to keep your RevOps team focused on the core thing based on where the sales team is in a stage of growth, if you need to go back, let's say back to our re previous example, the RevOps team or the, the revenue work has kind of moved into the we need a playbook phase. Having an outsourced partner help you go backward with the infrastructure things that, you, that may not be perfect and they may need some attention, but you don't want to divert RevOps attention on a playbook or on sales training or on a repeatable sales process, that's a great use of outsourcing because there's enough context there. There's enough built out. There's enough that won't be esoteric where someone could come in and you can hire a Salesforce contractor and they can look at it and say, great, the house is 85% built here. I can help you get the last 15. The challenge is when you ask them the opposite way to build the primary thing you're trying to do and your RevOps team is off working on something else, right? Something non-core to the stage of growth. So I would say that goes both directions. So that goes in the direction of going backward. If you're, let's say you're sitting kind of in that middle stage back to some infrastructure work. If you have to go forward where the, the team and COVID could be a good example of that, where some teams are probably in that middle stage of growth, but due to the environment right now, they're probably being asked by their investors. And I was on that side before. So I remember asking like, do you think you're going to hit your number? Do you think you're going to hit your number? So they're being asked to be the predictability engine when they're not really there yet. So outsourcing that part to me, the best example is finding a really, really good professional to do that because there's no context yet. There's not anything that's been built. They're not coming into an 85% built area and helping you get the last 15. They are essentially going from scratch and saying, you have not much predictability. They're going to have to build out your forecasting model, your forecasting cadence, your all the other things that you just don't have. So if you do outsource something like that and you're going kind of upstream outsourcing, I would always recommend that that is you know, a really vetted, really strong partner that like focuses just on that because there's not going to be a lot of context for them to, to go from to start. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And what's interesting is the parallels between what you're talking about with RevOps and also just other parts of go-to-market, right? It's kind of the same thing when it comes to 
your initial sales motion and coming up with messaging and trying to get an outbound function going, it's really hard to outsource the foundation in the beginning because you don't know what messaging works. You don't know what resonates. Once you have a bit of a playbook down and, and, you're, and, and now it's just little tweaks and you're kind of optimizing and trying to get it to that 100%, a lot easier if you wanted to, you know, have have some outsourced SDRs doing some outreach for you and whatnot, because you 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 already know the the overall direction you want to go with and kind of what that looks like. So it's it's, it's really interesting to hear you talk about some of the how that applies to to RevOps because I, I think there's just so many overlaps there when it comes to early stage and getting these initial building blocks in place. I think you're totally right. So. Brandon, you've touched on, um, you've shared with us some other, some, some mistakes, some, and some really great examples already. Would love to just dive into any other kind of common mistakes that we haven't touched on yet that people make when they go about building their first RevOps model. So one of the, one of the most common things I've seen is not giving RevOps a seat at the table. And it might sound selfish for me to say that obviously as a RevOps person, but where I think that I've seen teams go wrong with that is think of it similar to, and again, I'll use, a, um, I'll use an analogy of ships. You're on a ship, the captain, or I don't know if you call it the captain of the boat or the ship, is, is steering the ship and taking you in a direction. And that is your CRO, that's your head of sales. Everyone kind of on the boat rowing is your salesperson. I see RevOps job to add a lot of value to that as the person that's got the binoculars and is looking out and looking for things, hurdles, obstacles that might come in the way of, of passing through the sea or in the sales example of getting to the path of revenue. If you allow as a head of sales, your RevOps person to, to have a seat at the table in terms of, hey, we're looking to make this choice or this change to how we do something on the sales team. And the way that you're kind of going about that is not really couched in any data. It's just more anecdotal or it's kind of a traditional sales leader or if you're just either kind of the rah-rah person and you're just going to make the change and ask questions later. If, if you're not really utilizing your lookout, your person that's got the binoculars and can tell you something about where you're going, it'll probably take you a lot longer to get across the sea than it could have taken you because you can't be the person driving the boat or the, or the ship and also looking out into the future and, and seeing what's out there. So not allowing RevOps to have a seat at the table essentially can stunt the growth of the sales team because things that may have been obvious to those that are sitting in the data all day have the insights and could talk about them or could be tasked to do that if, you know, if asked. If they're not there kind of with you as a partner, then you're, you're essentially driving blind as a, as a sales leader and it makes the job a lot more painful and a lot more difficult than it has to be. And I've seen it happen to really good sales leaders, but they just get blindsided by, um, you know, uh, not forecasting properly or not uh, enabling the team. And then the team, like I'll give you an example. I saw it with a, with a company where they had a lot of great success with SMB, with a small, small business uh, unit. And they were looking to move up market to kind of the mid-market companies, but without any data about it, without any kind of evaluation of the, does that value prop resonate? Will the playbook still work there? What do we, you know, what does the sales cycle even look like? And it fails because it just, there was no, um, RevOps didn't have a seat at the table on that. It was moving in the direction of we're going up market, we're going to do it. It's kind of the Oregon Trail example. We're going to ford the river and then it doesn't work. So 
that would be my strong recommendation is hire a RevOps leader that you're, you feel comfortable to co-pilot with you. And if you're a sales leader and you'll have a much, much easier time navigating uncertain territory. Yeah. When you explain it there, it kind of makes me think of, you know, RevOps as this function that's really bridging ambition and reality in some sense, right? At startups, because you've got these VCs that are saying, go, 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 you know, grow as fast as you can. You've raised this big chunk of money. Now you've got this crazy ARR target. You're hiring like crazy. You need to go up market. You need your ACVs to go up. And RevOps is kind of the reality at the table, which is super important to say, we don't have data to back up that plan, right? Like you can give everybody a million dollar quota. You can say we're going to have a 45 day sales cycle. You could, you know, you can say all these things, but we haven't proven that we haven't really, you know, that there's not a high probability of that happening unless we make sure we get some of these other pieces in place. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 I can see how that's so important to make sure they have a seat at the table so that, um, so that kind of the, the whole, you know, boat in that example is really staying on track and, and staying on course. Yeah, and I and you you probably noticed by now the the theme of me liking examples and analogies. So another analogy to help illustrate for people is think of a uh, executive branch. You've got the president, and this could be any president, by the way, not to get political. But you have a president, and you have a Congress. So you can get things done by executive order if you want to. If you're a head of sales, you can just say we're doing this, and that's what happens, right? But leveraging your Congress and the, the the research that they can do, the experts that they can talk to, the background that they can do, and leveraging your RevOps team in the same way of like treating them like a, like a legislative body. They can essentially come back to you with, here are the four ways that we recommend doing this. Here's how much it'll cost. Here's what you can look out for. Here's the risks. We recommend option B, right? But at the end of the day, it's still the, it's up to the the executive to veto that or sign it or endorse it. So I think of it similar, like you can do things by just executive power, but it's should you and what is the best way to help you to help you make progress. It's probably a really good segue into my next question, which is what does success look like for RevOps? Um, are there specific like metrics or um, key results that you can expect this person to hit um and i guess overarching question is just like how do you know it's working yeah this one this one used to elude me often and i was really thankful for the experiences i had in, in venture capital because i got to see other companies do this and i think the the consensus on this at least from what i found is that it depends on where what stage you're in and i don't think that many organizations realize that so let's say you start evaluating RevOps by a certain metric, and then the revenue org starts to grow and it doubles and it gets bigger. If you're still using the metric to evaluate RevOps from when the team was half the size a year ago or two years ago, it's not really gonna work because you're trying to tackle different problems. You're trying to go from 25 million, let's say to 50, or now you're, you're, you know, you're scaled up and you're trying to go from 50 to 100. So you're gonna ask different things of RevOps to do that are more important um, than they were in the past. So I think the consistent thing I've found is if you use the same metric, it's probably not, it, it might be relevant like when you use it and then it won't be relevant in a year or the, the opposite, right? It's not relevant yet. And then the metric you've been using becomes relevant. So I think it goes back to the example I gave of if you're in that first stage, I think you should, you, in the early stage, you should really measure RevOps by 
getting scalable infrastructure done. And I think that is getting you off of Google Sheets. If you're on up a lot of things are in Google Sheets, that's helping out the marketing team with getting leads into the system really efficiently. And that's making sure that you can essentially, like if you think about it, if you have a question of, can we report on a buyer's journey from inquiry on our website to becoming an, uh, an MQL, to becoming an SQL, to then going to close, if you can do that in one system, I think that's a great way to measure RevOps early. Because if you can't do that yet, there's really no conversation about doubling next year. Because what's gonna happen is marketing won't know what's working or not to help you kind of fuel that fire. And the responsibility, the accountability will come back on RevOps as to, hey, why can't we measure? We have all these MQLs that we drove, but we have no idea of like, the connection to close. So to answer your question, I think it's in the early stages, it, it has to be things about, can you measure a lead buyer journey all the way through? Can you, does, does Marketo connect to Salesforce in a way that syncs the information back and forth bi-directionally? Um, does Salesforce work in terms of being a single source of truth for reps to put all the information that we're asking them to put in? If any of the answers to that are, well, not quite, or, well, we're still over here in Google Sheets, early stages, that's a great way to evaluate RevOps to say, hey, there's more work to do so that we're ready when we keep moving upstream. Brandon, you've covered a ton of ground here and I've certainly learned a ton today. Um, before we wrap up, are there any last comments, pieces of advice, any tips or tricks that you want to summarize for folks? Yes. I think that one of the ways to think about this is it's one approach and it doesn't necessarily mean that the approach I'm articulating or advocating is the one you have to take in order to have success when you start off with RevOps. Uh, oftentimes, a really good product, a really effective sales team, really good product market fit, other factors might weigh into the success of the revenue organization beyond just having good rev ops. But one of the one of the benefits is the better that you do at structuring rev ops right from the start, you set yourself up to have more success. So if you would have been 80% as successful having RevOps in the right framework and the way that you think about the evolution of it as the sales team grows will help you get the extra 20%. So it's, it's additive in terms of your success. Um, but remember, this is one approach and, uh, you know, it's, it's not the end all be all, but it definitely would, would help. And I've seen it work with a lot of different companies. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Brandon. It's been awesome having you. Thank you guys for having me. This has been great. Hopefully it's helpful for everyone out there.